0: Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my
1: co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and my record in chicken tractor fights is zero wins, zero losses, and five very expensive ties. (laughs) That was an
0: elaborate one right there.
1: Well, you know, Josh, after after a recent episode, and you took me to task, I I had to uh, you know up the game. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna let you carry this thing.
0: Okay, well, I appreciate that.
1: Um, in this
0: episode of our season on the films of 1984, we are at our season finale already. Amazing! It's always amazing how the passage of time continues. Isn't it? <laughs> um,
2: Who would have so thought?
1: I, I don't. Josh, know. time you know, is
0: meaningless right now, so I don't know what I'm saying.
1: People are gonna, you know, kick off their Sunday shoes and listen to this one, Josh. So here we are at the end, and uh, it's what the people wanted, Josh, because we give the people what they want.
0: It is. So as we always do at the end of our season, we put up an audience choice poll with three different movies that have a related theme, and we allowed people to pick. And I feel like. In past seasons, I think we've done a good job of presenting three appealing options that people might want. And we've had some pretty close votes. We did not succeed in that this season. Our theme here for the audience choice was uh, dance movies because of course it's the 1980s, you can't not have dance movies. And our options were Beat Street, Break Into, Electric Boogaloo, and the runaway winner, Footloose. So, we are talking about Footloose in this episode. Beat Street set an awesome movie year record by receiving zero votes (laughs) and Breaking 2, not that far ahead of it. So, we miscalculated on that, but what we did learn is that everyone wants to hear about Footloose, so that's good. That's cool,
1: man. You chose Footloose? That's fine. We're we're gonna go with it. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) You have chosen this. You only have yourselves to blame. (laughs) <laughs> more Footloose. <laughs> no, I didn't mean
1: it like that. I like the original
0: Footloose. Oh, maybe I meant it like that. Wow. Um, our, our audience certainly were not the only people who chose Footloose. It was a big hit in 1984. It grossed $80 million at the box office on its budget of just $8.2 Um, It was an even bigger sensation uh, musically. The soundtrack spent 10 weeks at number one on the Billboard charts and two singles from that soundtrack, the title song, Footloose, sung by Kenny Loggins, as well as Let's Hear It for the Boy, sung by Denise Williams. Both of those songs hit number one on the Billboard charts, and both of those songs were nominated for the Oscar for Best Original Song. However, I think this has happened in in the past, too, when two songs from the same movie get nominated, they kind of cancel each other out. And so neither of them won. They lost to, uh, Jason, do you know? Did you yes, look this I do. up? Okay, I well, I also called, know. I thought you were going to have you guess.
1: <laughs> I just called to say I love you by Stevie Wonder. The other nominations, Against All Odds, Bill Collins, take a look at him now. And of course, Ghostbusters, which we just talked about in our episode on Ghostbusters.
0: That was the right episode to talk about it, I think.
1: I think so. And I I honestly, I would have preferred Footloose or Ghostbusters to win this award.
0: Uh, I like I Just Called to Say I Love You. And that's one that like, I don't know anything about that movie that it's from, which is called The Woman in Red with Gene Wilder. And that's a song I think that has far Kelly
1: LeBrock, right?
0: Oh, Kelly LeBrock. Uh, I think she's the woman in
1: red. And I think Gilda Radner is also in that movie.
0: There you go. I mean, maybe it's good, but I just feel like that song has far outlived the movie. I mean, it, that's, that's a, a Stevie Wonder classic, and I don't think anybody really remembers that movie.
1: Maybe not, but everyone who remembers the movie Against All Odds, but everyone knows, take a look at me now.
0: That, that's right? true. Although at least they have the same title, so you would remember that. Uh, no,
1: but, but not really, because people know that song is Take a Look at Me Now, not Against All Odds. So. Fair
0: enough. Anyway, this episode is about Footloose. Yeah. So, um, let's let's get back to that. Um it was yeah, it was a, it was a huge hit and I feel like you know, we've talked it so many times in this season and it makes sense to wrap it up with the same theme about how important music was to the movies and especially the blockbuster movies of 1984 and this is a movie where these songs have have also maybe in a little bit of a way eclipsed the movie itself. There's so many uh, hit songs in this film, and not just "Footloose" and "and Let's Hear It for the Boy," but um, "Almost, Almost Paradise. Paradise,"
1: "Dancing in the Sheets," "I'm Free," "Holding Out for a Hero." All top forty singles, Josh.
0: There you go. Yeah, and and all songs that I think people recognize and know it, apart from this film. But the the film also endures. It was very popular. Uh, partially inspired by uh, real towns, uh, one in Oklahoma mainly, and there was also one in Washington, where, as in this movie, dancing is illegal. It seems ridiculous and highly unrealistic, but yet apparently it happened.
1: Yes. And Josh, before we jump off the soundtrack, I wanted to read a quote to you from Walter Yelnick, the president of Columbia Records at the time, Who, when they put it together, the soundtrack, he said, This is one of the most exciting albums I've ever seen here at my time at Columbia because we can put records on every radio format, which of course they did. It wasn't just pop, it was adult contemporary and all those other formats.
0: Yes. I mean, and that's one thing that uh, it's kind of struck me. And maybe that's just a sort of calculated corporate thing. But Ren McCormick, the character played by Kevin Bacon, who's the rebel who comes into the small town and just wants to dance. He loves all kinds of music. We see him driving up to the high school and he's blasting some quiet riot. So he's into the the metal, but he's also dancing to these pop songs and R&B songs. So Ren McCormick either is a very open-minded music fan or a corporate uh, record
1: executive. So either way, it worked out. (laughs) Who's to say? Now, Josh, you were talking about Elmore City, Oklahoma, which band dancing... Since its inception in 1898, where F.R. Johnson was the Reverend and he kind of the Reverend Shaw character was kind of like him. Uh, and then in 1980, the junior class asked for a junior prom and the school board was split two to two. The deciding vote came down to the school board president who said, and I quote, let him dance.
0: <laughs> nice. Yes. I mean it is it's so ridiculous that it's hard to it's almost hard to believe that that's real, but apparently it was. And uh I'm not the only one who had a hard time believing that this was real. Critics were not super into this movie at the time, although some of them liked it. Uh it it had a disagreement on Siskel and Ebert. Siskel gave it a thumbs up and Ebert gave it a thumbs down. Neither of them particularly liked it, but Siskel thought that the music and the dancing was enough to make up for the other shortcomings in the film, and uh, Ebert did not agree. And (laughs) he tore it apart. In his review, Roger Ebert said, "'Footloose is a seriously confused movie that tries to do three things and does all of them badly. It wants to tell the story of a conflict in a town, it wants to introduce some flashy teenage characters, and part of the time it wants to be a music video. It's possible that no movie with this many agendas can be good. Maybe somebody should have decided early on exactly what the movie was supposed to be about. The film tells the story of a Chicago kid named Wren, played by Kevin Bacon, who has a fashionable haircut and likes to dance. He moves with his mother to a small town named Beaumont, which is somewhere in the Midwest, although I seriously doubt a town like this exists anywhere outside of standard movie cliches. And... As we've established, something similar to this, I guess, did exist, but it feels real fake in this movie.
1: And it was shot in Utah, which is not the Midwest, but we need to have it here in the Southwest. But it does look Midwestern and feels real, feels fake. Who cares, man? Just let them dance. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's
0: very specifically not said in the movie where exactly Beaumont is, so that you could assume it's in the Midwest, or you could assume it's in the South or in Utah or whatever. I think the idea is that it's just like this archetypal small town. And he has moved from Chicago, which is very specific, but the town is sort of like mythical almost.
1: Well, I think this is one of those movies and I'm I'm trying to think of another example that was just trashed and uh, the public just rebuked the critical. And I'm not talking about superhero movies because we know that, but like a movie that like was just Pretty much trash, and the public was like, "Nah, we like it." There's dancing and acrobatics and music and tractors. We're gonna keep seeing this one.
0: Yeah, I mean that that's not an uncommon thing, certainly for critics to hate movies that become popular, and not just action movies or superhero movies. So it's uh, it's definitely not a surprise that that's what happened with this. David Denby in New York Magazine was even harsher than Ebert. He said, "What is the point of such a story in 1984?" No one attending a nationally advertised movie called Footloose could actually be against dancing. So the movie doesn't raise any issue that's real for the audience or for the filmmakers either. The minister is like a curmudgeon in an old Mickey Rooney movie, stopping the kids from putting on a show. Footloose may be a hit, but it's trash. High powered fodder for the teen market. Herbert Ross has retreated all the way from the daring he showed in Pennies from Heaven. The only person to come out of the movie better off is the smooth-cheeked, pug-nosed Kevin Bacon, who gives a cocky but likable Mr. Cool performance. And that seems like a very backhanded compliment for old Kevin Bacon right there.
1: Hey, hey Denby. Come here, <laughs> Denby. I haven't done this in a while, but I got something to tell you, Denby. There was so much there to cover. Uh, this idea that like no one could be against dancing, how many people could be against busting ghosts? It's not a real, like, it's not a real commentary on things, right? Like, how many people are against cool undercover cops? None of, you know, Beverly Hills Cop, whatever, you know. It's it's a false uh, criticism. I don't think that's a real criticism. And um, I'm sure we'll get into it more, but I thought, like, one of the real strengths of the movie was the layers to the character on the John Lithgow uh Reverend Shaw Moore? Like he wasn't just a fire and brimstone, everything is bad, you know? Like I thought he really brought a lot to this movie. Yeah,
0: I mean, I, I I did appreciate that they attempt to give him those layers. And I think I appreciated that a little more watching the movie this time than I had the previous time I watched it. Um, uh, but it doesn't quite come off. And this is another thing, actually, that Siskel and Ebert talk about and that they complained that he has this big change of heart that they felt like was completely unmotivated. And I don't entirely agree with them. I think the movie tries to give you a sense of why that happens, but I do think that it doesn't quite succeed at making him this multi-layered character that he could potentially be. Um, so
1: No, man, it was, it was less about having this huge change of heart and more about healing the heart. And that's why he was able to change because he was able to finally heal from the tragedy of his son dying.
0: Right, that's the idea and and I appreciate that in theory. I'm not sure if it quite is pulled off. But I think I think you're right that maybe David Denby is being a little too harsh uh on that character. Certainly the way he's set up though does recall this this very I mean everything about this movie recalls something that's way more old-fashioned than 1984. Sure. Finally, Janet Maslin in the New York Times has a few nice things to say. She said, enjoy the terrific title sequence of Footloose while it lasts, not just for its montage of interesting looking dancers' feet and red hot musical accompaniment, but also for its promise of the jumpy, colorful, exciting movie that unfortunately is not to follow. Instead, Footloose is a flash dance set in farm country, with tractors supplying the blue-collar chic and the flash mostly missing. The single burning idea behind the movie can be summed up as follows. Don't knock the rock. Like the rest of today's video-happy teenage entertainments, Footloose doesn't expect to be watched closely or taken seriously. It wants to fill the screen with catchy music and pretty kids,
1: and this it certainly accomplishes. So- Big time rock songs like let's hear it for the boy. I mean holding out a, for a hero. What a rocker.
0: Every <laughs> every review referenced this as quote rock music. So this was what the conception of rock music was like in nineteen I think
1: even Almost Paradise falls more into pop power ballad than rock music, but I agree.
0: Know. I agree with you. Other than like, I mean the the non original songs, like the Quiet Riot song and there's also a John Mellencamp song at one point, those are yeah. more rock than Heard uh, So Good. Yes, which is a which is a good
1: one. Yeah, that's my favorite scene in the movie, I think.
0: My favorite scene in the movie is what Janet Maslin references, is the opening credits, which is really creative and fun. And I think it draws on the director, Herbert Ross, his background in theater and dance. Yes, showing, it does. uh The different, the feet dancing and stuff. And, and again, turning on this movie this time, remembering not having liked it previously and watching that title sequence, I started thinking like, oh, this is kind of cool and creative. Maybe this movie isn't as bad as I remember it. And it mostly is.
1: But Wait a that, second. I, that, that part gotta is st- good. I got to stop you here, Josh. Because, yeah. uh, and I'm shocked. And, and I don't use that word lightly. I am shocked, flabbergasted. Uh, you have almost knocked me off my seat, Josh. Because, Josh, you love homosexual undertones. That's one of your favorite things in films. You like to bring that up in every episode. that doesn't mean I love
0: it. It just means that if it's it's there and I find it interesting, I might bring it up.
1: I mean, there is no film that has a more prevalent homosexual undertone than this let's hear it for the boy sequence where Ren teaches Willard how to dance. Like, I mean, come on, that is fabulous.
0: I am with you on that is that whole scene is super gay. You are absolutely right about it. And that's a fun scene. That is probably the best bit aside from the title sequence. I think, uh, there, you know, there are a few dance scenes that you could remove. And this is another thing that G- Gene Siskel calls them uh, modules where they could just be kind of inserted anywhere um, that are standalone musical numbers that are fun to watch. Um, and I did like this a little more this time than I had the previous time. But overall, it's not a good movie. I'm sorry.
1: Well, I want to... I want to bring back up that "Hurts So Good" sequence because I felt like that was an important sequence to the film, along with how much I enjoyed it. That's when Ren uh, takes um, Ariel and Willard and Rusty, played by Sarah Jessica Parker, about a hundred miles away from Beaumont, and they end up in like this honky tonk bar, and Ren and Ariel dance the night away to John Mellencamp's "Hurts So Good" and other songs, and you see just how important dancing is not just to them, but how people use it to like let off steam and, you know, just how important it is everywhere in the world. Let them dance.
0: Yeah, I think you're giving that scene way too much credit, but we'll we'll, we'll get into all of that uh, in our next segment. So Jason, you seem enthused about this film. Had you seen it before? I had never seen
1: Footloose before, Josh. I don't really want to say that out loud because the mob might come for me.
0: Well, obviously our listeners must be big fans of Footloose or at least more so than they are of those other movies. Um, I I had seen it, but not like anywhere near when it came out, not when I was a kid or anything. I saw it in, in 2011 when the remake was released and I had a not ideal experience watching those two movies because for reasons I don't remember, I couldn't get to it in time or I was busy or whatever it was. And I remember watching the original Footloose at home and you know stopping that at the end of that movie and literally immediately getting in my car and driving to the theater to watch the new one and seeing them immediately back to back like that and the remake which we can also talk about later but it's very faithful so they're very similar and seeing the same story that I didn't really like twice in a row <laughs> like an yeah. hour apart didn't do either of those movies any favors so uh, like I said, I think I was a little more generous with it this time. There were some parts that I thought were kind of fun, but overall, like it, no, it's a bad movie. I'm sorry.
1: Josh, did the, did the remake have a chicken tractor fight?
0: No, it's something, it's a different, I think it's like a bus or something. I can't remember exactly,
1: but did I think they, they changed it. Did have John Mellencamp?
0: No, it has a bunch of the other songs, but that's, I mean, the original songs are the ones that people really want. I'm pretty sure there's no Mellencamp. There's new versions. There does, a, there is a Blake Shelton version of Footloose. So that kind of uh, tells you what you need geez. to know about that remake.
1: Um, um, and they didn't have a sequence that rivaled the homosexual undertones of Ren teaching Willard how to dance.
0: I'm pretty sure it does have that exact
1: sequence. Well, then let's hear yeah. it for the boy. All
0: right. Dave, did you watch Footloose as a kid?
2: Uh, I don't think so. Uh, There's so many segments that, you know, obviously rang a bell watching it this time, but I I think I maybe just saw clips over the years.
0: Yeah, this is one of those movies that, I mean, as we've talked about a lot in this season as well, that even if you haven't seen it from beginning to end, there's a good chance you've seen bits and pieces of it in Mm. in clips, in highlights, or maybe just on TV in a background or something like that, because it's such a big pop culture
1: thing. And like you said, Josh, the... Music has probably eclipsed the film pop culturally, like Footloose, you're going to hear. I mean, I would say probably even at like clubs today, like they'll put it in some type of, you know, scratchy scratch version, right?
0: Yeah, I could see that. And I know like far before ever seeing this movie. Uh, I remember when I was in high school buying Monster Ballads, the compilation CD of hair metal power Almost Ballads, Paradise, yeah. Which definitely had Almost Paradise on it, which I had no idea was from Footloose until many years later. So, uh, yeah. Mike yeah. Reno
1: and Ann Wilson, correct? Is that a- Correct.
0: Mike Reno from Loverboy and Ann Wilson from Heart. And I love how in the movie they are credited that way, as if the movie <laughs> was concerned that you wouldn't know who they were well, and just well, the, had to they- add that.
1: They were probably Columbia artists, right, and were pushing this whole thing as like, I think they said they allowed two outside songs, but most of them had to be on label, which, as we know, soundtrack-wise was a big thing. What they did in the 80s is, hey, you're a movie company, we're a music company, let's synergize and just go and push package and go.
0: Right, and that worked out very well for everyone involved. So uh, any other background on this you want to mention, Jason?
1: Yeah, Josh Herbert Ross, we talked about obviously in our 1977 season of The Goodbye Girl, um, which was hugely uh, successful. Some of his other movies played against Sam, the Owl and the Pussycat, the Sunshine Boys. Steel Magnolia is the secret of my success. Um, and like you said, huge um background as a theater director, which um obviously played a big role in this uh with the dancing. Um, and then you gotta mention the writer, Dean Pitchford, you know, who wrote the song fame to the movie fame. He started writing this movie in 1980. And he said, I began writing the movie four years before it came out when there was no moral majority. It just so happened to be that I was working on something that joined up with the zeitgeist, which is kind of talking about Jerry Falwell and outlawing music and fun and everything else that people like. And I got that quote from, of course, one of my favorite books, the ultimate history of the eighties teen movie by James King. The last thing, Josh I want you to say is, I'm no saint you know, I'm not even a virgin. Thank you, Jason.
0: <laughs> yeah, and Dean Pitchford, we should note, not only the screenwriter, but also the songwriter uh, of all, I mean, the co-songwriter of all of the big original songs in this movie and, and is mainly a music guy and not as much, This his very few screenwriting credits, but really like the, the story and the music go so closely together because they're being, they were created by the same guy, I think that's important to mention.
1: Yeah, he he was um not a name that many people know but hugely successful in this world. Absolutely.
0: So we'll talk more about all of that in a moment when we get into our general thoughts on footloose. Welcome back to awesome movie year in this finale of our season on the films of 1984. We're talking about our audience choice poll winner, Footloose. Thanks to everybody who chose Footloose and ensured that I got to watch it again.
1: <laughs> I mean, dude, it's an easy hour and 40 minutes. I like the film. I I I had fun with it. All it is is 80s popcorn. And um, you know, I uh I I had a good time with it. Dave, what did you think of it?
2: Eh, I, I really like the music. Let's put it that way. I mean, my, my eventual star rating of this comes down to the music. It was just, it's such a fun little, uh, mixtape of of an experience, but the movie itself though, didn't really do that much for me. I I really didn't like Kevin Bacon in it either.
0: Whoa. Yeah. Hey, yeah. It's not, if this was awesome soundtrack year, I would say, (laughs) yes, the music is great. I mean, as cheesy as these songs are and they are the cheesiest, they're really good. No, I mean, catchy, and I'm not saying yeah. that that's even bad. Like they're really good examples of that cheesy 80s pop stuff. Right. Like they're super catchy and they're performed well, they're produced well. I mean, there's it's for good reason that these songs have taken on lives of their own beyond the movie because they're not just in service of the story. They're really good songs on their own. So I'm with you on that. And like I said, that opening sequence is really good. There's a couple other dance sequences that are decent. The one where, where Kevin Bacon, Wren's character, or the character Wren teaches Willard, his best friend, friend played by Chris Penn, how to dance. That's a fun little sequence too. But honestly, even the other dance sequences, I mean, probably the most famous one is Kevin Bacon and mostly Kevin Bacon's double uh, <laughs> flailing about the mill. That's That's <laughs> awful, Jason. You have to admit that scene is bad.
1: Josh, not his double. He had a stunt double, a dance double, and two gymnastics doubles. And that's, um, I really like the tracking shot in that sequence, if you want something. But that's just it. That's just it. Come on. That's just a flash dance homage. You know that.
0: Well, right. I mean, I actually have never seen flash dance, but pretty much every review that I read and a large portion of that Siskel and Ebert segment are talking about flash dance. And of course, that's known for like the welding, I think is what it is, where the Jennifer Beals character is dancing in in there so it's just kind of a ripoff. but yeah that that sequence is just ridiculous whether or not it's related to flash dance it is ridiculous it is very obvious when he's using doubles um, and kevin bacon himself is when you when you see him in close up is a bad dancer and also why is ren a gymnast can you answer that
1: i'm going to go i'm going to let me josh take a deep breath i'm going to go through these <laughs> Okay. Yeah. All right. The one thing I wrote down about that sequence beside the tracking shot was you know, how in like the 70s and 80s, like in like maybe kind of B movies, if someone would punch you and they would like or and they would want to make the effect, like they would show the punch three times in like slow motion. When he jumps off the bars using his gymnastic skills, Josh, I counted how many times in a row do they show him jumping off the bars (laughs) doing that one jump? What do you think? I, I don't know. Is it more than three? Eight times, John. Oh my god!
0: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, come on, that's amazing. So. It's it's so it's so bad, and it's supposed to be this emotional moment. Like he's so mad at everyone in the town and his family because they just won't let him dance, and he's gonna get in his car and he's angry and he's driving to the mill. He's like, I just gotta let it all out and. That's what we end up with. Well, and it's so, 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 so silly.
1: Well, Josh, I wanted to go over these other things. And, and Yes. And Dave, I want you said you didn't like Kevin Bacon's performance. And I'd like to know why. But let me kind of jump into what Josh was asking about as a dancer. Because obviously, as we've discussed on this season, Tom Cruise was up for a lot of these roles. And, um, you know, the reason he was out on this one was because Um, he had already started bulking up for all the right moves. And Herbert Ross, you know, the director has that theatrical background and he said he didn't look like a dancer and he wouldn't be able to dance with all that bulk in his body. Rob Lowe claims he was a finalist for it. I don't doubt it, but he injured himself dancing. So um, there's a quote I wrote down from Dean Pitchford about Kevin Bacon casting. So maybe that will help answer it, Josh. He said, when Herbert was in New York and met Kevin, One of the things he first talked about was how long Kevin's legs were. You look at the movie, and Kevin has got a great body for the camera. Herbert was all consumed about line, the line of the dancer. And it bears out, Kevin looks terrific doing what he does in Footloose. And Josh, your counter-argument is yes, but all the other people who... Do what he does, don't look like Kevin Bacon. They look like other people doing.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. And I mean, I, I agree that Kevin Bacon has the right look, as in terms of you just physically look at him and he seems like somebody who dances, but is in fact not good at dancing. And, and also, yes, the way that he moves when you have him in close up does not look anything like the way that those doubles move whether it's the dance double or the gymnastics double or whatever, and at no point did I believe that Kevin Bacon or Wren was like the dancer Were was this person. And so uh, yeah, maybe Tom Cruise wouldn't have been right for it or maybe Rob Lowe wouldn't have been right for it. I, I don't know, but I don't think Kevin Bacon's performance acting wise is bad. I mean, I think the writing is bad, but Kevin Bacon does whatever he can with it and is a good actor. Uh, not so much with the dancing.
1: It's interesting. You bring up the gymnastics and it came out in 84. So they couldn't have known like the popularity of like Mary Lou Retton winning the Olympics. But there's so many movies. Like I think I mentioned Hotel New Hampshire earlier this season and Rob Lowe, I think is a gymnast in that. And of course, in 85, we get one of the all time great gymnastics movies, Gymkata. But there's a lot of gymnastics (laughs) going on in the 80s for reasons I don't know. There's that other one that Mitch Gaylord's in, I forget what that's called. Um I agree with you. I liked kind of his sarcastic way and his too cool for school attitude. Kevin Bacon. Hey, I like that hat, man. They sell men's clothes where you got that. But Dave, you didn't like the performance. Why not?
2: Well, and and I should say it's not the performance so much. It it, it comes down to Kevin Bacon's look. I don't think I feel like he seems too uh like tough guy roughnecky to be dancer guy it just i don't know it just doesn't square between those well, two characteristics
1: well what about john travolta in um saturday night fever he was kind of a tough guy
2: that's an interesting point but that's also you know a much darker movie and it's also he's got like that italian energy <laughs> so you know that's kind of a, a different angle to he it does
1: have that, that energy um, <laughs> i did notice that when he went to school he never had a book bag
0: yeah. He's mm-hmm. too cool for that.
1: So yeah. I just,
0: I'm still hung up on this gymnastics thing because so not, <laughs> no, wait wait, wait wait not only is Ren a gymnast, but he comes to this small town full of small minded rednecks and there's a gymnastics team at this school. And not only that, But there are so many people on the gymnastics team that Ren, the gymnast, is rejected. And that's part of like the small town culture that like you're an outsider. You can't be on our gymnastics team.
1: Like what? Come on. Yeah, yeah, I love that. It's (laughs) funny what you're saying, Josh, because... He's clearly good enough for the gymnastics teams. Otherwise, you well, don't show him jumping off the bars eight times. Right? No, I mean he's
0: hi- he's hired a double who can do it. The double should be uh, on the team.
1: But and and but they kick him off the team because you know the small town gossip says he's a he's a bad apple, right? He's got he's got an attitude, and then all the like cool guys in school, the football players, like drive by and they're like, "We hit you off the gymnastic team." Ugh. Like,
0: like. <laughs> okay, uh, also. Those cool guys were not football players. They were the gymnastics team. The cool oh. guys in the small town are the gymnastics team. That makes no sense.
1: Oh. I'm I love you. En- to- you're just endearing this film to me more at this point. I it's just,
0: it just, it's a small thing, but it just really, I was like, what is who was why? So let's move on, though. I don't All want right. to.
1: I want to talk about, you know, we mentioned Chris Penn as Willard, who I think is. Quite good in this, and then you have uh, Ariel, the love interest Lori Singer, and Rusty, Sarah Jessica Parker, who won the Best Young Supporting Actress at the Youth in Film Awards, and she's very natural in this film. Did you like those performances, Josh?
0: Yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't think, it's not that the performances are especially bad. I mean, Chris Penn mm. is is likable, and you know, we'll talk later, he, he had a tragically short life and didn't really get to live up to his potential, but um, he's good. Uh, and Sarah Jessica Parker, who is often not likable, is, uh, has a kind of breezy uh, air in this movie. I think Lori Singer is maybe trying a little too hard. And a lot of people dislike her um, yeah, for, for various reasons. I, I think that character as written though is so absurd that it's really hard for anyone I think to play that where she's this ridiculous like daredevil almost. I mean, that sequence at the beginning of the movie where she's like straddling two cars as there's a a truck tension. barreling down on them is just oh, unbelievably man. stupid.
1: I have tension uh, just thinking about it. You're right, Josh. Um, she look, I mean, again, it's her body type looks like a dancer though, does it not?
0: Sure. If that's all we're talking about, then yes. I mean, right. they, they were saying some, some great was, body types in this movie.
1: Dean Pitchford <laughs> even said like they they were going to go with Jennifer Jason Lee. They were almost set on that. And then Herbert Ross realized that Laurie Singer six inches taller looks more like a dancer. And they went with her, you know, Madonna, um, Daryl Hannah, Elizabeth McGovern, all the all the names you would recognize from the 80s. I, I thought Michelle Pfeiffer would have been of all that I read, like. Probably the most interesting, or Julia Louis Dreyfus, because I can't see that happening.
0: That would definitely. I could see Julia Louis Dreyfus playing the Sarah Jessica Parker part, but definitely yeah. not the. But
1: the like literally every name: Rosanna Arquette, who I think was playing more mature roles at this time, and Meg Tilly, who we talked about on Amadeus, Heather Locklear, Meg Ryan, all these people. But um, yeah, it's interesting. I I don't know. Um, and and you didn't let you didn't like the Reverend Shaw Moore. Josh?
0: No, I I didn't really. I mean, like I was saying before, I, I, I give them credit for trying to do more than just like he's this one dimensional fire and brimstone guy. The idea that he's hurting because his son died in this drunk driving accident and he doesn't know how to process that. And so he's you know, sort of latched on to the idea of outlawing dancing as the way to respond. And that, but of course, that's not really the best way to do it. And he has this change of heart. In theory, I think that's all interesting. And I think John Lithgow is a good actor, although John Lithgow is also an actor who can really go way over the top very easily. Um, And there are moments in this movie where he certainly does that. I feel like, I don't know if every like step along that arc was justified, and I think he maybe is a little too easy to allow them. I mean, the ending of this movie is so anticlimactic when they're able to have the dance and it's just like, oh, okay, here's the dance. Um, it, it was a little underwhelming to me, but but I will give them credit for at least attempting that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it ended and then it kept going, right? So um, Yeah. Because then they had the dance and he had to punch out Chuck. Right, like which that. was a total afterthought of a of a No, audience. I mean it, it ends and then they get away with it because the last ten minutes are just people dancing, right? So you're leaving and you're like you're happy and they're dancing to Footloose and they're happy. So they're like not really thinking about the story. But I, I get it. I get what you're saying. So um I I thought the Shaw Moore character was was good, but um, you know, clearly we're on different different sides of the tractor on this one, Josh, <laughs> and we're headed towards a collision. <laughs> this chicken race, chicken <laughs> that
0: that we are yeah the, they're really quite like reckless with that like who poor poor guy who owns those tractors who has to somehow fish his tractor out of like a chuck's
1: dad right
0: a, was it chuck's dad i think so. either way whoever it is and these asshole teenagers have dumped his tractor in a ditch and i'm sure it's not easy to get that out so uh, yeah, I, I wasn't well, really, honestly, I wasn't really on their side most of the time. Josh, the teenagers. Yeah.
1: we couldn't get it out, but the gymnastics team, maybe,
0: <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe so. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know. It just, it's just so stupid and I can see, this is another one. And I think we've talked about this in other episodes this season. I can see that if you saw this movie as a kid and you were just drawn in by the ridiculousness of it, and especially by these big pop songs, that you'd have a lot of nostalgic affection for it. But not having had that experience, it's just
1: so much, it's just too hard to swallow. I mean, yeah, I guess, but I wrote down like, you know, the first kiss that they had, the Ariel and Ren character, and it's in the wind and you have the sun flares on the lens with the industrial park in the background. It's all very manipulated, but I could see why people would get caught up in it. Two other quick points I wanted to uh, make, Josh, was this was another one of those movies that started at uh, one studio and um, it got sent to another. I believe it started at Fox and they changed, uh, you know, bosses and went to Paramount and Paramount got the last laugh there. The last thing I wanted to mention, Josh, is Herbert Ross was originally attached to it and then pulled out and the movie was going to be directed by Michael Cimino, the deer hunter in Heaven's Gate. And then they fired him because uh, he's crazy and made Pitchford write like 20 drafts and put in a subplot about wandering peasants battling for the preacher's respect and asking for a lot of money and just all types of crazy uh, Michael Cimino stuff. So Herbert Ross came back.
0: And and Herbert Ross, as as we've said, is a veteran of the theater. He clearly is the right guy to direct a movie about music and dancing, and he's a professional, and he's made so many big hits. Obviously was the right person for this material. But I will say that even though that Michael Cimino version, I'm sure would have been really bad. I think it amazing. would have been, yeah, it would have been way more interestingly. Like this movie is not interestingly bad. This movie is just yeah. bland. It could
1: have all. been a Michael Cimino version of this movie would have been like a companion piece to Streets of Fire.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I would have rather <laughs> seen that. Even though it probably would have been a flop and it wouldn't be remembered the way that Footloose is remembered, I would have been all for it. So, But sadly, no. that's not that's not what we've got. So I don't know what else is there. Do you have a favorite song of all the songs, Jason? Or is it the,
1: the Mellencamp song? I mean, I think I like the way that I do like that song in general, and I think that is the most effective sequence. But the title song is so iconic, and it's a good, catchy song. You know, Almost Paradise would be the third one, I guess. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, in terms of the originals that they, which obviously that Mellencamp song was not original, nor the Quiet Riot song. I personally, uh, as a metal fan, enjoy the Quiet Riot uh mental Health. But um oh, yeah. In terms of the originals, I kind of like Let's Hear It for the Boy. I had forgotten again because that's so has,
1: crazy that sequence.
0: And and well, and also just the song. I've forgotten that it was in this movie because again, it has its whole own life. And even though I'd seen the movie before, I thought, oh, right, that is also from this. There's so many big songs that are from this movie. And so, that's
1: that is a very feminine song, you know. Let's hear it for the boy. It's got a big feminine energy to it. And Willard and Ren are both so macho, but the sequence is um, so sensual, shall we say, Josh, between the two of them. Uh, It's a real strange uh, juxtaposition of things going on there.
0: Yeah, it is. And you're right, there's there's some real homoerotic energy. There's also that shower scene where they're just kind of casually talking about the prom and they're all naked in the shower. And there was something going on in that scene I mean, well. I think
1: that happened a lot. Of, you never had to shower in a <laughs> locker room with other dudes?
0: I mean, maybe, but I feel like I wasn't just kind of casually sitting around naked in the shower talking about plans for the weekend. But I mm. maybe I've forgotten about that.
1: You might have heard it for the boys. <laughs> I might have. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, in that case, should we, uh, should we rate this one out of five uh, Sunday shoes?
1: Cool. Five Sunday shoes or five pairs of Sunday shoes?
0: Well, that may be five pairs of Sunday shoes, however many shoes
1: you want. Well, clearly I'm going to give it the highest rating. I'm going to give it three pairs of Sunday shoes. <laughs> and I'll probably look back in a few years and be like, you know what? That's one pair too many of Sunday shoes. But right now, three pairs of Sunday shoes. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I liked it a little more this time, but talking about it, I realized I don't like it. So I'm going to give it two (laughs) pairs of Sunday shoes, which was what I had originally rated it back in 2011. And also, for the record, what I rated the remake. So Dave, uh, what do you want to give this? I'm going to go with two and a half.
2: I was originally going with three just because of the music being so good. But yeah, the the movie itself is just meh.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'll give the music like, you know, three and a half stars. It's super cheesy pop music, but it's the best version of that. So yes, there's that. We will come back then and talk more about that music, I'm sure, as well as the legacy of Footloose. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this finale of our season on the films of 1984, we've been talking about our audience choice pick, Footloose. And uh, I have to apologize to all the people who wanted to hear about this movie because I've just been trashing it. And I, I'm sorry if it's your favorite movie, but it sucks. And, and, <laughs> but the legacy of this movie, it, 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 does, it does have an enduring popularity. Uh, the movie, as well as, of course, uh, the songs, which were, which were huge hits. I mean, if you go see Kenny Loggins in concert, he's still certainly
1: going to play Footloose. Wait, hold it right there, Josh. I just want to say one thing, because we've talked about like Harold Faltemeyer so much. Kenny Loggins is the pop equivalent to Harold Faltemeyer in the 80s. Like, dude, who ran the soundtrack game from us from like a pop hit uh, angle better than he did in the 80s? Highway to the Danger Zone. You know, there are just so many songs he had in movies in the 80s. I just wanted to say that.
0: Yeah, credit to him and he is I mean we talked a lot about Dean Pitchford who is the co-writer of all these original songs but he is only the co-writer and Kenny Loggins is the other writer on Footloose. Um so he certainly made a major contribution and not just as the singer of that song um and continues to be certainly very successful within his his realm um and Dean Pitchford too has had as I said Not much in in terms of screenwriting, but as a songwriter and as a songwriter in film, he's uh, contributed original songs to a number of other movies, including Oliver and Company and Shrek 2. Uh, Chances Are, which he had another big Oscar winning or Oscar nominated song, I believe, for uh, Cher and Peter Cetera, I think, Mm. which is, you know, you can't get more 80s than that combination
1: right there. (laughs) Uh, can Can I not Mike Reno and Ann Wilson?
0: Well, okay, there you go. Yes. But. Aside from Footloose, he also has written for Whitney Houston, Martina McBride, um, and the very notoriously flopping uh, stage musical version of Carrie, the Stephen King story. So he was songwriter on that one as well. But,
1: but uh, was it not a success? Wasn't there a stage version of Footloose that played and did all right for itself?
0: Yes. The stage version of Footloose, has it was quite successful, started in 1998. Mm-hmm and has been revived a number of times. And certainly watching this movie, it, I, I hadn't remembered whether there was a stage version, but watching this movie, you think there must be. Like, yeah, it's obviously strategy. set up that way. Yeah.
1: And it could play on cruise ships or the West End. Who, who knows? I don't know how and to r- get the tractors on the cruise ships, but who am I? To- yeah,
0: I don't know if the, the it involves tractors at all, but it certainly does involve, you know, and there's all of these original songs already. And of course, they're all in that stage version.
1: Do you think they um, recreate some of those dance sequences we've talked about, either the the kind of takeoff of uh flash dance or the, the uh, let's hear it for the boy number.
0: I mean, they must, like those are so iconic in the movie. I can't imagine, like you you can't have a version of this without that stuff. Uh, I'm sure they they have to. I mean, I would think the the opening credits where you just see the feet, I don't know if that really works on stage, but you know, is, is Ren gonna be like throwing himself, flinging himself across the mill or whatever? That's got to be in there. And the and the homoerotic uh, dance training? Come on, of course. Of course that's got to be in there. But I have not seen it on stage, nor would I. So I can't say for 100% certain. I have, however, seen the remake, uh, as I said, which came out in 2011, directed by Craig Brewer, co-written by Dean Pitchford, came back for that, uh, starring Kenny Warmold, the... Uh, who never did anything else, really, as big as that, who was mainly mainly was a dancer, and that's why he was cast, uh, as well as Julianne Huff, who is a more experienced actor, but of course still is mainly known as a dancer, who played Ariel in that one, Miles Teller as uh, Willard, and Dennis Quaid as Reverend Shaw Moore, and it follows the story very closely, features a bunch of the same songs, and is also bad.
1: Do you think it's more out of place that Craig Brewer directed it or that, um, Miles Teller was in it.
0: I, you know, I don't know. I think maybe Miles Teller is more out of place because Craig Brewer, I mean, his big debut was another music movie was, uh, Hustle and Flow, which is a different kind of music movie, but is certainly driven by the songs. So I, I you know, I, I, he sort of- Miles Teller was it. in Whiplash. That's a music movie. That is true. That is true. He's not known as a dancer, but I guess neither is Willard. So I suppose that makes sense. It's, uh, I, I can't recommend seeing it. <laughs> I'm not going to see that, I don't think. Uh, Kevin Bacon, of course. I mean, what can we say? He's, he's, whether, whatever you think of him. Ubiquitous. In this, yeah, he's everywhere. And this was one of his early major roles that turned him into a big star.
1: Yeah. Let's play Six Degrees to him right now, guys.
0: Yeah, Kevin Bacon was in focus,
1: <laughs> so. Oh, you did it in one degree, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing, so. Uh,
0: L- Lori Singer, we talked about, she has an interesting uh, career. Uh, she She's kind of a sporadic uh, character actor and is also a Juilliard-trained professional cellist who's played with symphony wow. orchestras. So quite a, an interesting dichotomy there for her.
1: Mm, I did not know that
0: there you go. I learned something on the internet.
1: And Josh, <laughs> you mentioned uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, and um, and we, and who is so hit or miss. I think when she's just natural and not like putting on airs about her performances, she's quite a lovely actress. But um, like in this, I thought she was really good. But there are times where it's like, oh, Sarah, chill out. We know you're on screen, you know? Right,
0: I, I wonder if she's capable of doing that kind of natural thing anymore. Um, but you're right. I mean, she doesn't have a huge part in this movie, but she is is perfectly breezy and likable as that kind of sidekick best friend character. She does a perfectly good job here. And I generally am not a fan of hers for the reasons that you just uh articulated, but totally fine with her in this movie. And of course, she's I mean, far more than like Lori Singer has gone on to a major, major, major career. Yeah. Uh, and probably even maybe is she a bigger star than Kevin Bacon, even maybe I, I could say.
1: Don't know, because I think she's kind of pigeonholed now as just the sex in the city lady, whereas Kevin Bacon can still get other types of work.
0: That is true. Yeah, he's a bit more versatile than she is. Um, Herbert Ross, his most important legacy, of course, is now being the second ever director mm. to get two episodes of Awesome Movie
1: Year. Who will get to three first, him or Rob Reiner, Josh?
0: Uh, that is a question I don't know want to know the answer to. <laughs> but yes we talked about his film the goodbye girl in our 1977 season and and as jason said he i mean even after this he was still like a major blockbuster guy directed steel magnolias and my blue heaven and the secret of my success all of those came after footloose so he certainly and um, a major
1: theater presence
0: yeah yeah i mean quite quite an an, amazing career for him I think you wanted to talk about Chris Penn. Well, we do, We should talk about Chris Penn, you're right. Who, as I said, is sadly, uh, you know, his life was sadly cut short, but had a lot of promise there and, you know, a brother of Sean Penn and could have been, you know, I, I think they could have been maybe uh, equally coming up there, but uh, he never, you know, he had some personal problems and died at age 40 and never really got to the place that he could have gotten.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I don't know if it was drugs that did him in or what, but... um. I mean, in this, and he he's again, like we're using the word natural, but like, you know, he and Sean and Sean Penn are like, you could see they're cut from the same cloth and we wonder what could have been.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You can, I mean, this is a super cheesy movie, but the energy that he brings to it, you can see how he would be able to do a lot of interesting, varied parts that to just. What,
1: uh, to. what film would you recommend for Chris Penn?
0: I have no idea. <laughs> I should have. I should have looked that up. I mean, I feel like mainly Chris Penn, it's like it's like the unrealized potential. So I'm trying to think of what else I've seen him in. Did you have a particular one that you would want to mention?
1: I uh, reservoir
0: dogs. Oh, that's there you the, go.
2: Yeah. That's definitely the one I yeah. would say.
0: And that's the kind of thing where maybe, you know, he could have had a chance to do more than that, but, you know, just wasn't able to get his uh his act together. I mean, but certainly he was he was Doing quite well in the eighties. You know, you mentioned all the right moves and he was in Rumblefish and uh at close range. I mean a lot of uh, iconic eighties movies and then he just kind of fell off after that because he couldn't I don't know, couldn't couldn't cut it, I suppose. I was going to, of course, mention Denise Williams, the most important legacy of this movie. So but uh, <laughs> let's hear it for the girl. Just, Do that. That's yeah. No, I mean I think the soundtrack uh, participants are just as important really as the actors in this movie in a lot of ways. And Denise, Denise Williams, this, that let's hear it for the boy was kind of the height of her success. And she, she shifted into a a big gospel career. Uh, Bonnie Tyler, who sings holding out for a hero is still a major, major star in Europe. And, uh, Jim Steinman, who we talked about when we talked about streets of fire was the co-writer on that and has worked a lot with Bonnie Tyler on some, uh, important, uh, successful. We song. love so, Tyler, Josh. Yeah. She's great. I mean, I think, uh, I don't know what, uh, Mike Reno is up to these days. I, I should have looked that one up. He's working for uh, the weekend. There. <laughs> Obviously. Good answer. So, uh, any, any other legacy things you want to talk about here, Jason?
1: Uh, I think you pretty much covered it. You might not have uh, mentioned it was nominated for Best Soundtrack and Best R&B Song at the Grammys. And at one point, it was the highest grossing February release ever. And, you know, it just is uh, one of those films and soundtracks that's ingrained in pop culture like so many we've talked about this season.
0: That is. So it's a good note in that way for us to kind of uh, end the season on because it really gets to those themes that we've been talking about this whole season about these enduring pop culture phenomena and about the significance of music. So thanks everyone for picking Footloose and we'll try to come up with a better range of choices next time. No, I
1: mean, I think our range was good. I mean, we had Beach Street and Breakin' and this, and this is what people chose, you know?
0: Right. Well, I mean, I I just mean a, a, a better balance maybe of things that, that'll have interest that, that, Is even we'll see
1: I think it was less of a commentary on the other two and more of a commentary on how beloved Footloose is
0: for some reason so (laughs) that's Footloose
1: and that's this episode of awesome movie year you can follow us on social media you can I am Jason Harris comedy on Facebook and Instagram Jay Harris comedy on Twitter Go for Jason.com. Some tractor threw that into a canal somewhere. Uh, um, we are Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. AwesomeMovieYear.com. Check out the About section.
0: I am at Josh com. At Josh BellHatesEverything on Facebook and at SignalBleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together.
2: Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at piecingpod and also join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where most of the votes for this episode were for Footloose.
0: And we can, uh, you can tear us apart on that group. And we should also mention Dave, the By David Rosen Patreon, because yes. as we as we end the season here, 1984. We are going to have, uh, in addition to the great content there from piecing it together and from David Rosen's music, we are going to have a bonus 1984 episode on Prince's Purple Rain that will be posted soon on the Patreon. So,
1: uh, where is that? It's called by David Rosen, patreon.com.
2: Produced by David Rosen, Patreon.
1: And, so, and look, guys, I agree with you. There was no reason to sign up for it before, but now, Purple Rain, I mean, come on. Now's the time. How many? How many patrons do we have,
0: Dave? I think we were up to like six. We're at six right now. Yeah, I, I want to see it get to Ooh, ten,
2: guys. I think. Nice. I think we could. Uh, I think we could coast once we hit ten. Josh, there you have, go. You, have
1: you seen a cut of the, that money? I haven't seen one dollar from it.
0: Well, well I we hit one, eleven. One dollar is about all we would ever possibly see from that. But <laughs> hopefully, you want to hear our bonus episode on Purple Rain, and also other uh, great content from piecing it together and Dave Rosen. So go to that on Patreon. But in the meantime, what is in our next regular episode, Jason?
1: Josh, we're doing the epilogue of 1984. We'll talk about some of the other choices that we had considered, some of our favorites from this season. And we will reveal the next season. What year are we going to do next on Awesome Movie Year? Ooh, the suspense. (laughs) So
0: tune in next time for our season epilogue. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie
2: Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts.
0: An All Points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.